Good morning. Glad you're here today. Hope you've had a great, great weekend so far. Here with God's people to start a new week, reminding us of what we're trying to be, trying to worship Him with all of our hearts. We are really, really glad you're here. For those of you that are visiting, um, we're glad you're here. We hope we get a chance to talk with you a little bit when our worship service is over. We're trying to be a church family that genuinely loves God, that genuinely tries to help each other get to heaven. And if you have any questions about Christianity, about us, if you're looking for a church home, please let us know. We'd love for you to be part of this church family. Join us as we try to help each other follow the Lord. And if we can help you in any way, please let us know. We have a new sister in Christ this morning to introduce, uh, McKinley Anderson. Is she, where is she at? There she is, okay. Her dad was pointing a little further back. There's McKinley. McKinley was baptized into Christ yesterday afternoon about 4 o'clock by her dad, John. Um, We're excited for McKinley. This is something that she has been talking about for about a year. And so she's been studying with John and Tracy, and they've been trying to decide. It's tough as a parent, isn't it, to know exactly when your your child's ready for a life commitment. And so she's been talking about that with her parents. And recently she's really felt the need to be baptized into Christ and have her sins washed away. And so yesterday she was able to do that right here at the building. And so we're excited for McKinley. She starts her Christian walk. Make sure you give her a hug, tell her you're proud of her, and be praying for her as she begins the most important part of her life, living for the Lord. Proud of her. We've been talking this year about the big picture story of the Bible. We want to at least know the big picture. What are some of the major things that happen and how it all fits together? And we've been spending our summer months talking about the Mosaic Age, the time when people were under the law of Moses. So we've seen them leave Egypt. We've seen the time in the wilderness. We went to Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. We saw them come up to the Promised Land and enter the Promised Land under the leadership of Joshua. We saw the ups and downs of faith that came from the times of the judges and the kings. And they were in the promised land altogether about 800 years. So this is a long period of time. Then last week we saw in 586 B.C. that the Babylonians come in and destroy the city. And it was rehearsed again in the the passage that Carter just read for us. They come in and they burn the city and begins a new era that you've seen, that I see here on the screen, I put here on the screen, uh, exiled in Babylon. And that'll be our study today. I hope it'll be a good one. Let's pray together, and then we'll jump into it. God, thank you so much for a time of worship today. We pray, God, that you're with us, that you're living in us. And God, I pray that our worship has been sincere and from the heart. As we study today, Lord, I pray that we'll be reminded of something that will help us grow, that will help us grow even closer to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I can't imagine what it must have been like to have grown up in Jerusalem, being told my whole life this was the city of David, the city of God, that this is the place where people come to worship God as they did for so many years, for those 800 years coming before God's throne, and for about 400 of them coming to Jerusalem. To come there and and to know that's the place, and then to have to watch as the temple burns, and have to watch as the city burns. And not only that, but then to be taken away to be dragged off by exile and, and in some sort of a, a captive march all the way to Babylon, which must have taken weeks, if not months, perhaps with chains on your wrist, being taken off to Babylon to the most powerful nation in the world at that time, but a nation that cares nothing about the one true God. I can't imagine the type of culture shock that must have happened. Babylon was the most powerful nation on earth. The city of Babylon had the the hanging gardens, the famed hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world. 
The city of Babylon had a wall around it that was so big that the the historian Herodotus said that a four-horse chariot could turn around on top of the walls. I don't know if he's exaggerating or not, but it, it speaks to the power and the strength of this country. And it would have been a great place to visit if this were a vacation, but this was not a vacation. This was a place where the children of Israel, the people of God, were dragged away as captives and forced to live in a land they didn't want to live in. In fact, there's a psalm that tells us about the pain of this time period. You might remember the psalms were written over a long period of time. David wrote about half of them. They're ascribed to him, but they're written over a long period. And one of them writes about the time they were in Babylon. It's Psalm 137, where it sounds like this is someone who went through this time period and had a chance to come back eventually. And look what it says in Psalm 137. He says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. This was not a vacation. This was not a chance to see the world that anybody was happy about. They'd been pulled out of the land that was promised to their fathers, to Abraham, to David. The temple had been burned. They didn't know what was going to happen. It says, We sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion was the hill that Jerusalem was built on. In the, in the New Testament, it comes to represent heaven, the, the heavenly Jerusalem. So Zion was the, the hill of Jerusalem. We remembered it, we cried. Upon the willows, in the midst of it, we hung our harps. We weren't, we weren't singing like they did in the Old Testament anymore. He says, for there our captors, notice that description of it, there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors, notice that word, Mirth. They demanded mirth. They demanded some celebration, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, he says. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. In context, may my right hand forget how to play that harp that I hung on the tree. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. The psalm goes on. But I think those verses make clear this was a painful time. This was a time of questions. This was not a time of joy. Jeremiah had prophesied it'd be 70 years. And I don't know how many people listened to him. He would be exactly right, just as God was always correct in what he said. But I don't know how many people knew it. But this was a tough 70 years. And some people never came back from Babylon. They just stayed there. Now, this is one of the key themes of this time period. Faith under pressure. Because again, Babylon was an enemy. They were not a a friend. They were not trying to help Israel out. I noticed walking back toward Bible class this morning, uh, Peter Welch has been teaching a class on on Revelation that everybody says is a great class. And I always like to glance at his board that he's gotten written up there uh, as I walk back toward my classroom. And it said there on the board something about Babylon. Babylon in the New Testament, including the book of Revelation, represents Rome, which was at that time the enemy of God's people. When they thought about Rome that was trying to kill the Christians, that was trying to destroy God's people, they thought back to Babylon, the enemy that had done that in the Old Testament. So they were an enemy. And faith was under pressure. And so the questions that hung in the air of this time period were things like this. Are God's people going to stay faithful or not? Are they going to forget God or not? Are they going to give in to the gods of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon? Is that going to become who they worship? Or are they going to stay true to the one true God? Those are the type of questions. And so in this time period, you have fiery furnaces and lion's dens and, and times when, when life literally hung in the balance based on whether you're going to stay with God or not. Boy, that's a lot of pressure to put your faith under. 
There were some heroes. There were some people in this time period who said, we're not going to compromise our faith. Some of those, you'll recognize these names. Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet in Babylon. Most of the prophets of the Old Testament were back in the, the promised land, Canaan area. But Ezekiel's in Babylon. And he's there telling them, first of all, that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, but then God's not going to give up on them. They're going to go back and rebuild again. Ezekiel was a hero of the exile. Esther was a hero of the exile. After Babylon was conquered by the Persian Empire, Esther would become queen of the Persian Empire. You might know her story. If you don't, read the book of Esther. It's a good one. And the one we're going to talk about today, just a little bit, is Daniel. Daniel was another hero of the exile. Someone who had to face life in Babylon with his faith under pressure and have to decide if he's really going to follow the Lord or not. And here's how we're going to do it today. I'd like us to look at Daniel chapter 1. There, there's the first six chapters of Daniel all tell about faith under pressure in Babylon. And there's great things in all of the chapters. I just want to use Daniel 1 to illustrate how those people of faith found a way to stay strong in the midst of this different world that they were thrown into. Because this was a different world. How do you stay strong and close to God when everyone around you is pressuring you to do otherwise? We see a little bit of that here in Daniel. So we'll walk through Daniel 1, and then we'll take three lessons from it, and that'll be our lesson this morning. So Daniel chapter 1, here's the first thing you see in Daniel. He's forced into a new life, like many of the Israelites. Forced into a new life he did not choose. Daniel was actually carried into captivity with a lot of others about 20 years before, Babylon, before Jerusalem was burned by Babylon. There was three waves when Babylon came in and took captives off. And so Daniel was part of the first one. And here's what we have, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. The third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So he gathered around it, wouldn't let anybody enter out. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. I want us to notice in these first seven verses the new world that Daniel's being thrown into. And you notice right here in this verse, he took off the vessels of the house of God. We imagine this to be the the things that the priest would use to make sacrifices. We imagine this to be uh, the, maybe the, the candlestick and the, maybe the showbread. We don't think the Ark of the Covenant was taken off. But we're not exactly sure what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. So who knows? He takes all these things that were God's, brings them away and puts them where? In the house of his God, in the treasury of his God. These are, these are things we've claimed in victory. Can you imagine seeing the things from God's temple being put into the house of this other God to be thrown down in a place where they'd be in their treasury. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So they're, they're looking for the best of the best among this group of captives we've taken away. Give us some of those, and we're going to train them, and they're going to be part of us. We're going to make them us, and then they can serve in our government. And they can make our nation stronger. 
So the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You may not know the names Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but you know the names they were changed to, because look at verse 7. It says, Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They will come up again before the book of Daniel is finished. But notice what has happened here. The items of God are put in the house of the gods of Babylon. Daniel and his friends, among others, are being educated for three years. They're being taught a new language, the language of the Chaldeans. They've given new names. They're trying to completely change who they are, aren't they? Can you imagine if, if a war broke out? And let's say that America gets in a battle with China, and China wins somehow, and China drags a lot of us off overseas, and they start making us learn the new language, and they give us new names. We're not even allowed to go by our old names anymore. And they're telling us what we have to do. Can you, you, you start thinking to yourself, wow, they're, they're trying to change us. Like They're trying to make us them. And that's exactly what's happening here. They're trying to change the Jewish people into Babylonians, at least those that they want to serve for them. Wow, that's, a, that's an almost scary thing to go through. And so here, the next thing, Daniel makes a decision. He makes a decision that he's not going to compromise some things, anything that involves his faith in God. Look at verse 8. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. You see that word defile pop up. It's some sort of spiritual defilement. There was something about the king's food and wine that Daniel felt like he could not do as a follower of God. We don't know exactly what that was. It may be that, that the type of food and wine that was served was something that was against the Old Testament eating laws. Maybe. It may be that the food and wine was in some way offered to the gods of Babylon. And maybe that's why he felt like he couldn't defile himself by taking of this food and wine. But whatever it was, he saw this is something that's not right with God. And so I'm not crossing that line. I'm not going to do something that's going to hurt the Lord. So he asked the commander of the officials, can I please not do that? Can I, can I not eat of this food and drink of this wine? Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials, verse 9. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head. To the king. Do you hear what he's saying? He assumes, hey, look, you've been assigned this food because it's going to make you healthier. It's going to make you better. And if, if I get in trouble because you don't look as strong as everybody else and they find out that I have let you not eat the king's food, guess what? I get killed for that. Daniel, I'm not doing that. 
It says that in verse 9 that he had favor. Daniel, I like you, but I'm not going to die for you to just not eat the food you're supposed to eat. So Daniel, Daniel very wisely and very kindly has an idea. Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel and his three friends, Please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. Give us ten days. Let's just see. Let us not eat this food for 10 days. Give us vegetables and water. And then you can just compare after 10 days and see, what you, see if you think we're falling behind or see if you think we're doing okay. Seems like a fair thing. And so the guy agrees to let them do this. But notice Daniel he makes a commitment on it. He's not a jerk about it. He's not rude and yelling and shouting. But it, hey, how about we do this? Just, just give us a chance. Then the next thing that happens, God blesses that. I think you'll find, by the way, every time you decide to take a step of faith and a stand of faith and do the right thing, I think you'll find God is going to bless that. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says that God is rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. God rewards that. Whenever we decide, hey, this is the right thing to do, no matter how difficult I'm going to try to do it, you're going to find that God blesses that. And God blesses Daniel. It says in verse 14, He listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter. And I think that, I don't know if fatter is the right translation there, but they were fatter, they were better looking than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So they're healthier, they're stronger, they're not falling behind at the end of ten days. I don't know this, but I've wondered if Daniel and his friends, knowing what the competition was here. I've wondered if they've worked even harder themselves in that 10 days just to make sure they didn't fall behind. I wish I knew more about that. But after 10 days, he looks, and they're better than everybody else. And so the overseer continued to withhold the choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. Notice verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. God gave him that ability, as Daniel will say in the rest of the book. At the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, if you remember that was three years, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of all of them, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. And as you find in the rest of Daniel, God allowed Daniel to be in the special position uh, to make a difference for him as the book goes on. But what I want us to notice before these three lessons here at the end, Daniel decided, I'm not going to dishonor God. I'm not going to sin against God. He wisely, kindly made that work, and God blessed him when he did. I think we learned something from that. Three things we notice in Daniel showing us how these people of faith continued to hold 
strong to their faith in God, even in a difficult situation. Number one, God is still in control. Don't miss that. Don't miss in this chapter, even though Babylon was strong and Nebuchadnezzar's sitting on the throne of Babylon and they're being told what to do. Don't miss that God is still the one arranging events here. It said there in verse 9, God granted Daniel favor and compassion. It says in verse 17, God gave the four youths knowledge and wisdom. God is blessing them. God is still in control. They must have wondered that. They must have felt like Gideon. You remember Gideon back at the time of the judges when the Midianites just came in and kept taking all their stuff and the angel appears to Gideon and says, God is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon says, if God is with us, why has all this happened to us? Sometimes we think the same thing. If things look bad and difficult... Maybe God is not really ruling the way He used to rule. Maybe God has left us. Maybe God has left us alone. Even though God had allowed them to feel the consequences of their sin here, even though God had allowed Babylon to have some power, God had not left. God was still sitting on the throne. And we love passages, I do, passages like Psalm 46, verse 10, where he's talking about how there's all the war and how God can, can stop all that and then people doing bad things and God could stop that whenever he, he feels is the right time. And I wish I knew exactly when God decides to step in and when God decides to let people make their own decisions. But I know that God keeps all that in some way within His control. And then it says in Psalm 46, 10, Cease striving and know that I am God. Your translation might say, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. A lot of times things look difficult and faith is put under pressure. It helps me to remember, no matter what it looks like in Babylon, no matter what it looked like with the person on the throne, God is still the one sitting on the real throne, the only one that matters. That helps me live more faithfully even when it's not popular. Number two, I need to ask myself from this chapter, do I share Daniel's conviction that God's way is really the best one? That's what Daniel believed, isn't it? Give us 10 days, he says. Give us 10 days. We're going to do it God's way. Everyone else can do it Babylon's way. And Let's just see what's better. Just see what you find. There's a conviction there. And again, I don't know how much he worked and helped to to help the conviction along, but there's a conviction that says, if I will do it God's way, hey, this is going to work out, and we're going to be better. We're going to look better than everybody else at the end. And that's exactly what happens. Do I share that? Sometimes we're tempted to look at God's rules. And if we think of them like that, maybe we've already missed the point. But sometimes we look at the things in the Bible and we say, do they hold us back? Man, man, you can, you can do so much more if you just don't do things the way the Bible says it. But I think what you find when you see it more clearly, God knows what He's doing. And when God gives us commands and rights and wrongs, it's not just to see if you're going to do it. It's not just to, to have to hold your breath and, and fight through the punishment of life and, and the punishment of living by the commandments. If you could see all the paths of your life, If God could just take us up and show us all the possible paths, the decisions, the the ways things could go, the ones that would be the best would be the ones in which we choose God's way. I fully believe that. 
I hope you do. And I believe it because the past is like Deuteronomy 10. When we're tucked here in the book of Deuteronomy is one of these places where we're reminded God gives us His laws not just for fun, not just to see if we're going to do it, but because He knows they are for what? I've underlined it there. For our good. I should have put 1 Timothy 4 verse 8 up here for a New Testament passage. But if you want to write that down, 1 Timothy 4 verse 8 says that if we're doing things God's way, it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. So God's way is the best way to live. Sin gets you in tangles. Sin messes up a lot of things. We need to have a conviction. It says the best path for my life going forward, however I've messed it up in the past, the best path for my life going forward is I'm going to do it God's way and I'm going to trust that God's going to lead me down the best path. Daniel believed that and God proved him to be right. Number three, we'd ask ourselves, will we let the power and pressure of the world change us? That's what Babylon was trying to do. They were trying to change Daniel and his friends, and they knew it. And they said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to sin against the Lord. We're not going to let it change us. I love Romans 12, verse 2, because of the challenge that it presents before us. Also because it opens our eyes to what the world's trying to do. Look at what this verse says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, which is what? There it is again. Which is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to this world. We, we live in a world that is trying to conform us, that is trying to push us into its patterns and ways of thinking and ways of acting and wants you to act like Everyone else acts. And you may have those places in your life where you fall for that more than other places. I hope you'll work on that. I hope we all will. You may have that group of friends that when you get around them, you don't talk the way you know you should as a Christian. You fall back into those sinful patterns. You may have that group at work where you're just tempted to just go along with what everybody else does, even when it's not right. Everyone has those places where they feel that conforming pressure more than others. And I've got to ask myself, am I letting the world change me or am I letting God change me? Because it's one of the two and it's only one of the two. I hope you and I will rekindle the meaning of that verse in our life. I don't want to be conformed to this world. I want to be transformed. I don't want to let the world change me. I want to be what God wants me to be. Daniel was convicted in saying, I'm not going to let the world conform me. I'm not going to cross this line of sin against God. And God blessed it. How do you handle that? How do you handle a world that wants to change you? A world that doesn't honor God the way it should? I, I hope we see from Daniel today. I hope we see conviction. I hope we see kindness. I hope we see wisdom. I hope we see trust. All the types of things that we need to add in our own life. A lot of people feel like Daniel. The book of Daniel has become a lot more relevant to us today. A lot of people feel like our culture more and more is becoming the culture that's trying to change Christians and tell Christians how to act and not act and sort of push everybody into the world's mold of things. I, I can learn a lot from Daniel. What's the mindset that Daniel had? I think you see it in John chapter 17. In something Jesus prayed for His disciples something that still applies to us today. And here's what he said. He said, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. He's praying to God. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. This is where we get that phrase that you probably heard before. In the world, but not of the world. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying to the Father, they're not of the world. They're different. But I'm sending them into the world. We don't run and hide. We don't hide and close our ears and and just get away from everything. What we do is we're in the world, but we're living faithfully in the world. We're living confidently in the world. We're living knowing that God is still with us in the world. And I'm naive enough to think that when people see that, they'll appreciate it. And they'll be called to think about their own faith. Let's remember this morning, we are different. And we're supposed to be different. We're not supposed to be like everybody else. Let's be willing to do that. And let's follow Christ, trusting God will bless us when we take those steps for Him. This morning, are you living for God? Are you living in a way that's being transformed by Him? Are you letting the world change you? If you've been letting the world change you more than it should, recommit yourself to living for God. We're about to sing a song of invitation. And during this song, if anybody needs to come to the front, we're going to be here. We'll be ready to talk with you, ready to pray for you about anything that's going on in your life. If you're ready to become a Christian today by putting your sins behind you, ready to live faithfully for God, ready to turn away from all the things of the world, why not do what you see on the screen this morning? Ready to, if you've heard and believe in Jesus Christ, take those last steps of repenting. That's a mental commitment to follow Him. Confessing your faith in Jesus. Being baptized in His name for the forgiveness of your sins. We'd love to see you make the biggest decision of your life this morning if you're ready for that commitment. If you're here and we can pray for you about anything, we want to do that. We want to leave here ready to live for Christ, knowing we're right with Christ. If you feel you need to take a public step of faith to make that happen, we'd love to help you. You're invited to come to the front now while we stand, while we sing. alive had it not been the Lord who was on us